of Paul, the Apostle Paul, this morning. How many of you had a good Thanksgiving for which you can be thankful for and enjoy time together? And again, if you're only thankful on Thanksgiving Day, something is desperately wrong. Amen. Uh, We should be thankful to God every day and remember His goodness each and every part of each day that He gives us to live. Acts chapter 9, we have the life of the Apostle Paul. He is first introduced to us earlier in the book of Acts as a persecutor of the church. And in in chapter 9, he meets Jesus... And what we're going to do is just look at Paul's life. Several things have happened in in recent history to just bring uh, my heart and mind back to this point for this message this morning. And, And that is simply what our life should be about is serving God. Now, we probably talk more about serving God and do less of it than any other commodity that I know about. I I mean, uh, we, we talk about God, we talk about loving Him and wanting to serve Him, but the question is, are we really serving God? Does What does it mean to serve God? And as we look at Paul's life, we look that he just served God. That's that's what he did. And we wonder sometimes, what does it mean to serve God? Do I have to be a preacher in order to serve God? Must I be... Uh, some uh, a missionary. We just finished our missions conference a couple weeks ago. Is is that what it means to serve God? And then we go to the other extreme, and we say, "Well, well, listen. I, I go to church when I can, and uh, and I put some money in the offering plate when I can, and, and and that ought to be good enough to serve God." Now, the truth of the matter is as in with most things, either extreme is not serving God. Or if we think that we have to become a preacher, or if the reason you become a preacher is because you think you'll be serving God, that's not the reason you become a pastor. That's not the reason you become a missionary. You do these things because God has chosen you to do these things. And uh, one, uh, some of you will remember the Global Independent Baptist Times. That's a newspaper Baptist publication. Shows up about five times a year. And uh, back in September, Brother Hardy said, uh, I want you to tell the story of Open Door Bible Baptist Church. And so I've been writing that article and thinking about it. And I, I have to get it done this week. Pray for me. Uh, because I also am going to Heartland Baptist Bible College and preaching chapel Thursday morning and the Christmas banquet Friday night, and then, Lord willing, be back here for Sunday morning. And so uh, I'd appreciate your prayers, but as I began thinking about how the Lord moved and led us here to Astoria and just going over those facts again, I realized there's something very important, but it's often overlooked. It's 
that daily service to God. It's faithfulness in the little things. You know, we have, uh, we try to divide life up into big things and little things. Sometimes people in a marriage, they say, you know, listen, uh, you take care of the big things and I'll take care of the little things. Well, let's, let's get a definition here. I heard one couple, they made a decision that he would take care of all the big things. And that was defined as he was going to choose the family's political decisions and whether to endorse the president's decisions to declare war. And, and uh, he was going to take care of uh, global warming and all of those things. And she was going to take care of the little things, how we spend the money and... Uh, uh, what decisions we make and where the kids go to school and what food we eat and all of this. She's going to take care of the little things. He's going to take care of the big things. Don't think it worked out very well because that's not a good, that's not a good definition or a division between big and little now, isn't it? How many of you have ever had an issue, an argument with another person? Anybody ever had that happen? How many times was it over something little instead of something big? How many of you have had a big argument over a little thing? That's, that's where most of us come in now, isn't it? I want to challenge you this morning. There are no big and little things in serving God. There's just serving God. That's all there is. And that's where our life needs to be focused and where we need to be. And we're going to start at the beginning with the Apostle Paul. Now, listen, his name wasn't originally Paul. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, names, well, many times, names mean things. The word Paul, the name Paul, means little one. Saul, his First name, his given name when he was born, means exalted one. And it's interesting how the exalted one in his own life, and you read Paul's testimony before he met the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That he had attained everything that could be attained in the Jewish religion in his day. If the Apostle Paul were alive today as Saul before he was saved, he would be one of those guys that you see in the TV ads. He would be one of those guys that you see uh, writing books about how to be a Jew in, in our day and in our society. That's who he was. People were looking to this young man for leadership. In fact... One of the, he said he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Do you know that Jewish scholars still quote Gamaliel today? He was Paul's teacher. Paul had a lot of hope placed upon him for the future of Judaism. And Paul understood something. That if the tradition of the Pharisees was going to continue... 
if it was going to hold sway in the world of those that believed or said they believed in the God of the Bible, something was going to have to be done about these Christians. And Paul persecuted them and tried to destroy them. Paul believed in door-to-door visitation. Read Acts. He hailed them, uh, men and women. He would greet them in the streets by saying, Greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And if the greeting was returned, he would arrest them and take them to the temple and put them on trial. And let me tell you, Paul was good at talking. He would twist their words and compel them to say things that they didn't intend to say and have them brought on, on uh, convicted of trumped-up charges and put in prison. It says both men and women. It's hard to imagine the the vehemence of a man that would arrest a woman and put her in prison in these days and times or in any day and time. And on chapter 9, Paul, uh, let's just read verse 1. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now, that is quite a statement. You have to remember who was in charge. This was Roman providences. In fact, Damascus had one governor, and the land of uh, what we would call the land of Israel was under another governorship. He was going between jurisdictions of the Roman Empire, arresting people, taking them across state lines to stand trial in a jurisdiction where they had no standing. I mean, even the Romans knew about these things. Remember when Herod, I mean, when uh, Pilate heard that Jesus was of Galilee? He sent him to Herod, who was in town, because that's who should have tried Jesus. And so, here we have this guy bending and breaking laws that he could persecute Christians. Then he meets Jesus. Look at verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse 5, his first question, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? Now, that word Lord is important. Saul did not know what was going on. He did not know to whom the speech, from whom the speech was coming to him. But he did know one thing, that whoever this person was standing there in front of him, robed in light had to be from God. Now be careful. Later on, Paul's going to warn the Corinthians that even the devil himself has transformed as an angel of light. You've got something that Saul did not have. You got the word of God. This is where we go to tell the difference. Somebody said, why doesn't a bright light fall on me? And why doesn't Jesus appear to me to tell me? Well, I'll give you the short answer one of my professors gave in Bible college. You ain't Paul. Well, yeah. But God doesn't need 
to give you special attention when he's already given you all the special attention you need by preserving a word that you and I can read. Amen? By giving you a place called a church where you can go and hear. And so Jesus appeared to him and Saul's first question was, Who art thou, Lord? Whoever you are, I'm going to obey you. And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now, what do you think that did to Saul's heart at that moment? Here Saul had his first opportunity to see what was recorded that Abraham saw. What Zacharias saw at the side of the temple. And of course we know Zacharias saw uh, the angel, but this, this, he didn't know who this was, whether it was an angel, whether it was God himself. But he had read about these things in the Bible. Paul knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And this was something that he knew about. He said, this has got to be God. Who art thou? And the voice came back and said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. So, whoa, wait a minute. Everything I've given my life for is all wrong. How many of you remember that day? When you realized that everything you had given your life for was all wrong. You see, this is where service starts. When Saul, who would become Paul, and please don't let me confuse you because I'll probably say both names interchangeably in the wrong time, but uh, that's just the way the old brain works, so... We'll we'll try to get through this this morning. But when Saul heard that, he realized that everything that he had accomplished in this life was now absolutely worthless. We've had many religious people walk through the doors of this church and they'll say, well, Pastor, you, you don't know what I used to do and how I had this and that, and I always, always get just a little nervous in my heart. Because if you're going to serve God, you've got to come to where Saul came on the road to Damascus. Everything that I ever did before, everything that I could count as being holy or good, is all nothing when I meet Jesus. Amen? Now, his second question was the beginning of his service. Verse 6 says, And he trembling and astonished said, Lord... Now, you notice he used that word twice. He said, Who art thou, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He says, I know who you are now. I know that everything I've given my life for is absolutely of no value. Read Philippians chapter 3. He said, now what will I do? And Jesus told him, 
Go into the city of Damascus and it's going to be told you. Arise, go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. You know, when you get saved, you don't have to understand all about baptism. Because baptism is not salvation. It's a public testimony of that salvation. When you get saved, guess what? You don't have to understand. When I got saved as an 11-year-old boy, I had no clue that I would eventually go to New York City and start a church and see the things that God has done here in our little church happen. If I had, it would have scared me to death. God has a way of withholding things from us until we need to know. But let me, let me get you something. If you got to get this, if you don't do the little things at the beginning, you're never going to get the big things at the end. If you don't start where you are, doing the things that God wants you to do. Paul was told to go and sit and wait, and he waited for three days. How many of you waited for three, three days for anything? Now, I know we had a few people waiting in line at uh, Best Buy and some of these places. And if you'll wait three days for a television set, just so you can watch filthy, dirty things that God doesn't want you watching anyway, why can't we wait on the Lord Jesus Christ? Doesn't this have a promise of a greater reward than Sony or Samsung or whatever those things are called today? When Saul received his sight, what was the first thing that he did? He got baptized. You know, some preacher, oh, I don't remember how long ago, was coined this little phrase and wrote some cute little books. What would Jesus do? Now, there's some problems with that question. Because what did Jesus do when he met a blind man, my friend? He gave him sight. Can you do that? What did Jesus do when he meant someone that was sick or paralyzed or dead? He healed them. He gave them life. What did he do when he met the Pharisees? He confounded them. Boy, I used to think when I was a young preacher, I'll, I'll find me that Jehovah's Witness or that Mormon missionary and I'll, I'll, I'll get out the sword of the Spirit and I'll slice them all to little pieces. I'll show them. Well, the Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be exalted. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like also unto him. Also like unto him. It's not a contradiction. Solomon is just saying, if you deal with fools, you're going to look like one. And people are going to think you're one. Jesus was the only one that could answer the false religionists and not look like a fool. You can't do what Jesus did. You just can't do it. That's not the goal. 
The goal is, what wilt thou have me to do? Paul was arose and was baptized straightway, immediately. Let me tell you, one thing that Jesus did that you can do is he went out and found a Baptist preacher, John the Baptist, and got baptized. Amen? That's one thing you can do that Jesus did. The rest of it is going to be in service to him. First, everything that you are, were, have accomplished, no matter how good or bad it was, it's nothing when you meet Jesus. You've got to give Him everything. The second thing is, just be obedient to the Word of God. Get baptized if you're not. Same day we're added unto them. How do you get added to the church? Well, we try to be as biblical as we possibly can. You've got to be scripturally saved. That's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And that's where the problem is, the nothing else. Now, it's easy to believe in a Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. No religion, no good works, no accomplishments, no goodwill. Oh, I get so tired of, well, if you just, if you just exude some better feelings about things, it'll be better. Since when? What have you ever changed by feeling better about something? I'll tell you how you change things. You change things by doing something good. Amen? And that's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And being baptized and serving in the local church. You read the book of Galatians and you'll find that Paul spent over three years here in the city of Damascus before he returned to Jerusalem. He wasn't in Damascus all that time. He went out into the desert, the Bible says, where uh, if we understand the scriptures correctly, Jesus himself appeared and instructed Saul, who would become Paul in all of the things that he needed. That's why we call Jesus, I mean, that's why we call uh, Saul, an apostle. An apostle was one that is personally trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. I was not in Astoria two weeks passing out tracks, and I found a track on the ground, and always curious as to who's passing out and what they're passing out, so I picked it up and looked at it, and, and there was a gospel track that said, Apostle Johnny Walker. I said, well, you know something? This guy can't be an apostle because Jesus didn't show up to personally train him. I know that because he's left us a whole Bible. You don't need Jesus to personally show up when all you need to do is serve God by learning what's written down. Amen. Do you believe that today? That's your only security. How many cults. In fact, we often get asked the question, what kind of cult is this? Uh, no, this isn't a cult. This is a Bible-believing church. Well, why do you put the name Baptist up there? Well, it's very simple. 
there is an historical connotation to the name Baptist. And we're not going to take time to go through the whole thing, but in the Middle Ages, they were called Anabaptists. Do you know what made the Anabaptists, the true Bible-believing part of the Anabaptist movement, do you know what made them so radical? They refused to allow men to interpret the Scripture. Everybody was supposed to read the Bible for themselves. Does that sound radical? We're supposed to do that. The Bible says so. Amen? They did some other really radical things. You had to be an adult. And you had to give, well, not necessarily adult in age, but you had to be old enough to give a testimony of your own personal salvation in Jesus Christ before they would immerse you in water, baptize you. That was radical. You know why? Because everybody else had tradition that you sprinkled a little water on a baby's head and that was baptism. Let me tell you, that's how the Bible says somebody ought to be baptized. Amen? It's just simply believing the Bible. And we want that historical connection because we want people to know who and what we are. And so we use that name. And by the way, there's an awful lot of scoundrels that use the name Baptist. Uh, Do I need to mention names? I mean, one of them was president. A couple of them was president. Does anybody remember Dirty Mouth Harry? Truman? (laughs) I mean, that's going back. He claimed to be a Baptist, but he was a profane man. That's not in the Bible. Does that mean we shouldn't be Baptists? No. It means that we need to be honest about who is a Baptist and who isn't. Amen? You got a Baptist line up with the scriptures. That's why we use the name. Now, here we have Paul, Saul, meeting Jesus. He takes everything that meant anything to him in his life and he discards it alongside the road to Damascus. He goes into Damascus and he himself, the Pharisee of Pharisees, repudiates his entire religious history by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ whom he persecuted. He then spends time being trained and he comes back to the city of Damascus after being personally trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come here to verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. But Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But laying wait, but their laying wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Now, how would you like to make a change like that? He was the Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was the one that everybody was looking to. Many had hung their hopes on saw that he would be the next great leader of the Jewish faith. And now those very men who once looked up to him are trying to kill him. And the only way he escapes 
is in the dark of the night, they stick him in a basket and let him down over the wall of Damascus. And by the way, the wall of Damascus was not 10 feet high. Uh, This was not some little trick that they accomplished. This was quite an undertaking and very dangerous in and of itself. How many of you walk past the buildings and see those guys hanging in a little bosun seat off the side of the building? Uh, I'll tell you what, that scares the living daylights out of me. Uh, I just don't want to do that. But that's what, no safety net, no climbing rope, no Oshawa standards to make sure everything was done. I mean, they just put them in a basket and let them down over the side and Paul ran for his life. Um, you know something? Do you keep serving God when people are trying to stop you from serving God? Uh, The Apostle Paul did. But it gets worse. You see, we come down here to verse 26, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now, here he was, the, uh, Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who had taken a, such a public stand at Damascus that they had people watching every gate of the city trying to murder him on his way out of the gate, men who were willing to go to the gallows to put an end to his life, And he escaped with the skin of his teeth, as we might say, being lowered over the side of the city wall and makes that journey back to Jerusalem and meets the disciples and says, surely they'll accept me. And you know what they do? They say, we're not talking to you. Uh, uh, You can't come worship with us. Now, you know what? Most people right here would get discouraged. And they would quit serving God. And let me tell you something. There'll come a time in your life when people who should be helping you and encouraging you won't. What what was Saul's response? He kept serving God. Now, God took care of Saul. Because he sent Barnabas. And Barnabas met with him and took him in and met with the the disciples that were there at Jerusalem. And Saul was soon coming in and going out. He was part of the church there. He was accepted into their fellowship. But the Jews in Jerusalem started trying to lay in wait to kill him. And this is still Acts chapter 9. And so what the disciples do is they have a meeting. And I don't know if Saul was part of this meeting or not. But it was decided that he should go back home where he came from. Now let me ask you a question. Was there a good church in Colicchia where Paul was from? No. The Gentiles hadn't heard the gospel yet. We're still in Acts chapter 9. It was going to be a while. It was going to be chapters 12 and 13 where the church at Antioch in Syria was finally founded and and Saul would be sent out and all these things were going on. 
But verse 30 says, And when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Now, I don't believe we should read things into the Scriptures there, but it says the brethren brought him down and sent him forth. They didn't give Saul much an opportunity to voice his opinion and say, Hey, you know, I'd like to be around you guys. You, you know the Bible. You're going to teach me. Read the book of Galatians. He wasn't in Jerusalem very long. And they shipped him back to Tarsus. Then look what it says, verse 31. Then that had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. How would you like to be your absence be the result of a lot of good? Wouldn't that be discouraging? I mean, here he is. Well, I stirred up a lot of controversy in Damascus and just got out of there by the skin of my teeth. I was only in Jerusalem a few weeks and I had to run out of there. The brethren actually sent me home. And here I am and now I hear all these good reports that's happening since I left. You know what Paul's response was? He kept serving God. In fact, when we get to chapter 12 here or chapter 11, Barnabas had to go search for him to find him again. Nobody knew where Saul of Tarsus was. Nobody knew what he was doing, but the simple fact that when Barnabas found him and they returned to Antioch that they were serving the Lord there is telling us that Saul was still believing in the same Jesus that he met on the road to Damascus. you follow me on that? I don't believe I'm making a stretch in Scripture because here's what happens when you stop serving Christ. There's usually just a period put there and that's the end of the story. Look through the Bible. This was not the end. This was the beginning. Saul served Christ when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, even though it meant giving up everything he knew and had given his life for. He identified with Jesus Christ and with the Christians at Damascus in baptism. He, would, he kept serving Christ when no one would believe him. He was shipped home. We don't know how many years he was there, but it was more than one or two. It may have been as many as six, depending on whose chronology you look at. That Paul was alone in, in his hometown and there was very little that he could do. There were really very few other Christians there and there wasn't no record of a church being started. Saul wasn't ready for that work yet. But he kept serving God by being faithful to his word. You know, Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures. They were the scriptures that we had. But don't you think he had to do some more studying now to find Jesus in those very same scriptures? He had to start all over again. You know what? It takes time to develop into somebody that God can use in his service. 
And when no one believes that you'll ever amount to anything for God, that is the very time that God is preparing you, probably the most. And so we get down to chapter 11 and verse 25. It says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Paul was serving God. Now we get to Acts chapter 13. And we come here to verse 2. And it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And I wish we had time to go through this whole thing here. But now Saul is going to receive the call of God. And he is going to be sent out with Barnabas as a missionary, as an evangelist, to start churches. Uh, Can I ask you a question? Who was in charge? Barnabas was. How many of you, well, don't answer that question. I was going to say, how many of you like to be in charge of something? I mean, when something's going on, how many of you like to be calling the shots and telling everybody what to do? I mean, there's just a certain group of people, they like doing that. People said, Pastor, you you got to be part of that group. No, I never have been. I don't know that I ever will be. Wait a minute. Isn't that your job? Yeah, that's why I do it. But that that's not my primary desire. You see, when God gives you a job to do, serving Him is just being obedient whether it's being faithful in a quiet way or being faithful in a big, loud, public way. It's still the same service to the same God. Amen? And so when Barnabas was in charge, what did Paul do? He still served the Lord. In fact, they called Barnabas Mercury and they called, I mean, Barnabas Jupiter and they called Paul Mercury because he was the one with the mouth. Mercury was the messenger god in the Greek in the Roman pantheon. But you know who Jupiter was? He was the chief god. See the people of Lycaonia, we look at ver- uh, chapter 14 and verse 12. It says and they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. And they were going to do sacrifice. They, they had brought an oxen and garland and all the trimmings and the priest and the priestesses from the temple of Jupiter. And they were going to do this whole thing. And Paul and Barnabas went running in the midst of them and said, Whoa, wait a minute. We're, we're just men. We're not gods. But we want to tell you about God. I'll tell you, a lot of people have been destroyed in their service to God because they believe their own press releases. They got to become a pastor of a big church, well-known. I'm glad I'm not going to have to ever worry about that. Amen. But, I mean, there were some people that you study history. 
You study recent history. And they got thinking a little bit more about themselves than they should have. Paul had that opportunity right here. But he said, no, no, I can't serve God and get something for me. I just got to serve God. I've just got to be faithful to take the message. Paul faced a lot of opposition. And we won't have time this morning to go through all that. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll just pick up Paul's testimony here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 8, it says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that's modern-day Turkey, that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. Now that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. That Paul's testimony was, we were pressed... He says, we were pressed out of measure. Now, simply what that means is, um, how many of you remember those old red dodgeballs that you used to play in the schoolyard? When that ball is pressed out of measure, here's what happens. The side of the ball splits open and all the air runs out. It's pressed beyond its stress standards. I found out the hard way that if you took one of those little red balls and kicked it up against a wall, you could split it right in two. And I got in a lot of trouble over that. But that's what pressed out of measure means. It means crushed. It means ripped open at the seams. And Paul said, this is where we were. We were pressed out of measure. He says, above strength, we buckled. Insomuch that we despaired, even of life. How many of you have dealt with despair? I mean, that's where you just have no hope. He said, we had no hope. That even if we should live, that something good would happen. I dare say most of us have never been there. Say, but I've come awful close. Well, maybe you have. I'm not here to measure your sorrow and your pressure against mine. But let me tell you, when he says pressed above measure, that means split open. Above strength. Tell you what, if you overstress metal, it will buckle. Entire buildings collapse and bridges go down. That bridge in uh, Minnesota that collapsed a few years ago, they had put steel plates and bolts in that bridge to repair it that could not handle the pressure and the stress of the bridge. It was pressed above strength and the entire bridge came down. This is what Paul is using to describe his physical situation even to the point that he despaired, maybe we won't die. Maybe we'll have to live through this thing. 
Now look at verse 9. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul is going on, he says, you prayed for me in Corinth. And that's what brought me through this thing. And remember, it's not your prayers that make God do something. It's your prayers that get you out of the way so that God can do what he wanted to do in the first place. You see, Paul just kept serving God. When he was in prison, what did Paul do? In Philippi, at midnight, he and Silas sang praises to God. They kept serving God. And when he heard the jailer pull the knife out of the sheath and and prepare to do himself in, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Do thyself no harm. Hey, you know what? He was just taking God's message to every person he had an opportunity to take it to. Amen? How about when he was in Caesarea? He was held there for two years by the governor. And if you'll read in in, uh, Acts chapter 24, uh, the governor gave him his liberty and said that no, don't forbid anyone coming to him or anyone ministering to him. And so people were able to come and visit him. They were able to get instruction. Paul was able to teach and preach while he was a prisoner. In fact, in Philippians, as he's talking about then being in prison in Rome, he says, my bonds have been to the furtherance of the gospel. Even those in Caesar's household have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You see... Paul kept serving God. One more passage. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You see, Paul's service for Christ was still good when he was ready to die. It's interesting. I have a book in my office that went through and gave many quotes of people who were on their deathbed. They said, Queen Elizabeth of England died saying, my kingdom for another moment of life. Scary words. From arguably the most powerful person on the face of the earth in her day. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Amen. Paul said, I'm ready to die. Remember the story my pastor, Brother Thompson, told. Years ago, there was an atheist, and he was making all the television talk shows and stuff, and he put out a challenge that no one would read certain passages of the Bible in their church service because they were not fit to be read in church and all of this. And 
preacher took him up on his challenge and, and read those passages in, in, out of Song of Solomon and other places right in church. Where they belong, it's part of the Word of God. And went on a talk show and this guy said, I'll give a thousand dollars. And the talk show host said, now listen, he did what you said. Why won't you give him the money? And preacher, after the thing was over, in his kind, shy, thumb-sucking way, got this atheist on his own. He says, said, I don't care about your money. He said, that's not why I did it. I just want you to shut up. He says, but here's what I want. He says, when you get ready to die, he says, I want to watch you die. He says, I want to see if your faith or your unbelief in God will carry you over to the other side. He said, I've watched many Christians die and I've seen the grace of God take them from this side of eternity into eternity. He says, but I want to see how atheism really holds up when it's time to die. Paul says, I'm ready to be offered here. The time of my departure is at hand. He said, my service for God prepared me for this day. And Timothy, the only thing I have to say to you, he said, I charge you. Look at verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom, at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant. Be the same. In season. Out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. There's a definition of service if you want it. He said, watch thou in all things. You know what? It is so easy. To say, well, you know, I'm living for God here in this part of my life, in this part of my life, in this part of my life. But I got this one little area over here that nobody really knows about. And that's where the problem is. That's not watching in all things. That's watching in some things. The devil loves to overwhelm us because we get attacked from so many different angles at the same time. How do you protect yourself? Well, if you run over here and try to put this fire out, they're going to be pouring gasoline on that one over there. I mean, that's just the way it works. How many of you remember Psalm 119? He said, I'm going to spend time with thy commandments. He said, I'm going to love thy judgments. He said, I'm just going to obey the word of God because that's my only protection. And now Paul's at the end of his life and he says, watch thou in all things. 
Let the word of God do its work. Endure inflictions. Is it a big thing? If you suffer for your own wrongdoing, read Second Peter chapter 2. No. But if you'll suffer for having done right, that God takes notice of. Endure afflictions. Paul had lots of afflictions to endure. Some from the very Christians that he had led to the Lord. But that's okay. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Now this is talking to Timothy as a preacher and primarily it's talking about preaching the life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to be born again. But let me tell you, every Christian has the duty to share with others how to be saved. If you're saved, you have to tell others how to be saved. That's just all there is to it. Brother Webster was here. He's echoed something we've gone over lots of times here. If everybody would just bring one, we'd have to start having two services on Sunday to get everybody in. Now, I'm not holding my breath. I'm sorry. But maybe you could bring one. Amen? Maybe you could tell somebody else about Jesus. That's the work of an evangelist. It says, make a full proof of thy ministry. Talking again primarily to Timothy, a preacher. He's saying, you're going to have to give an account for everything that you have done. But you know what my Bible tells me? It says, every person is going to have to give that account of whether they lived a life for God or whether they've lived a life against God. Those that have lived for God at the uh, Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, those that have lived against God at the great white throne at the end of the millennial period. Let me tell you, we're all going to have to give an account. Making a full proof means that I, when I stand before God, I'm going to be able to open up the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says and this is what I did in agreement with the Scripture. Not because I have to argue with God, but because God wants me to be as sure that I'm doing His Word on this side of heaven as on that side. Are we still together, folks? You see, this is what serving God means. And this is what Paul did with his life. Very quickly. How many of you have met Jesus like Saul did on the road to Damascus and you gave up everything? You just turned it aside that you might believe on Jesus Christ. Everything you were, everything you've done has been counted but dung that you may win Christ. You've gotten rid of it that you can accept Christ. Well, if you've done that, did you do the little things the Bible says? Be baptized, 
serve God in his church. Take the time that God is giving you to be prepared for the work that he calls you to do. Believing and serving God even when everybody else looks at you like you're crazy or that you've lost your mind or that you'll never amount to nothing, that doesn't matter. It's God for whom you must count for. When other people were in charge and it wasn't your ministry and it wasn't your work, were you still faithful just to serve God the way He said? When you were all alone, did you still serve God? When you were persecuted, did you still serve God? Are you going to be ready when God calls you home? You know, most people, they talk about, well, when it gets close, I'll I'll set all my affairs in order. And you find that in the Bible many times. Set thy house in order, for thou must die. You know what? Most people that die don't have time to set their house in order. It happens far too quickly. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the meeting in the air. And that will happen faster than the twinkling of an eye. That's the amount of time it takes light to reflect off the human cornea. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. Jesus is going to be gone. Come and gone. Are you going to be ready? The only way you can be ready is serve the Lord today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would put within our minds and our souls the the events and the life facts of the Apostle Paul.